Hi, I'm an Alanine from Alabama, and my name's Bo. Hi, y'all. I'm glad to be here. Let me uh, let me get a couple of things out of the way here, right quick. I I was attacked by a serious case of allergy about the middle of the week, and uh, and I've got it down to a runny nose. Any of you have a problem with allergies, you know what I'm talking about. And I hadn't been able to get this nose stopped yet. I've been chasing it all the way from from West Blockton, Alabama, to North Platte, and uh, <clears throat> but uh, I got me some. I got here, and, and uh, Barry took me to my favorite store down the road, Walmart, and uh, and got me some stuff. And I'm taking that stuff, and it's it's working. It's working pretty good. But if I have to stop every now and then and just honk or blow, or just hang with me, I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing is, and I don't know why this is going on. This I don't know if all this is connected or not. But uh, a year and a half ago, I had uh, some uh, pretty major surgery on my back, and as a result of that, I uh, came out of that surgery with a, a numb left foot. And uh, so uh, it's, it's been uh, it's been bothering me a little bit the last week or two, and uh, and I've been dragging it some and. So if you see me leaning over at a crazy angle or something like that, you just know that foot's tingling or something like that. Uh, I, I was, uh, it got to bother me in the airport, and, and I was kicking some lady's suitcase that was in line in front of me. I mean, I didn't even know I was doing it, see, because my foot was numb. <laughs> Finally, she turned around to him and said, would you please not ruin my luggage? <laughs> so uh, so we, uh, just so you know where I am and where I'm coming from, I want to thank the people that are responsible for me being here this weekend. Now, <clears throat> I heard this uh, described earlier today as a celebration. And that's what it is, isn't it? This is a party. And if you're new to this thing and, uh, and, and just being exposed to it, I hope that before you leave here, you come to realize that you have been at the party. They've been at the celebration. Now, my wife and I, we love the celebration. Because that's the way we were introduced to this way of life. See, September uh, 4th, 1982, was my first Al-Anon meeting. And it was held... Thank you. And it was held held on the campus of the University of Alabama there. And it was Tuscaloosa, Alabama's AA and Al-Anon anniversary. And uh, it was, my wife was... Uh, they let her out of treatment on Saturday of Labor Day weekend, 1982. And we picked her up at 12 noon, and we went straight to Tuscaloosa. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in my story. But the important thing is that we walked into a room, and there was 500 of y'all. And you were cleaned up, and you were dressed up, and you had on foo-foo juice, and you was running around in there hugging each other and laughing, and, 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 and we fell in love with you. Now, we didn't know what you had. But we knew that whatever it was, it was infinitely better than what we brought to the table. We knew that. And we fell in love with you that very night. And this thing called attraction rather than promotion set in. And you began to, to uh, attract us into this way of life. So I believe in the parties. And I go to all the parties that I can go to. Uh, bring you uh, greetings and love from my wife. She's, uh, Shirley, she's uh, 20 and a half years sober. Uh, I bring you greetings from my daughter. Uh, who is 20 and a half years in Alateen and Al-Anon. Now, they're both up in Virginia at an Al-Anon convention this weekend, sharing their experience, strength, and hope up there. We left son-in-law Bob at home. He's 10 years in the program. 
uh, 10 years sober. And uh, we left him out there in, in, in West Blockton, Alabama on Serenity Hill. And he and two beagles that we got that we're trying to find an Alapup group for, uh, they're, they're taking care of the hill and waiting on us to get home tomorrow afternoon. So, so thank you for having me out here. Uh, when I introduced myself to you, I introduced myself as an Al-Anon. And I'd like to talk about that for just a moment. Because, as like I've already said, I want you to know exactly where I come from in this thing. When I got here Labor Day weekend, 1982, I thought that being married to Shirley, being married to an alcoholic, made me an Al-Anon. And what I found out over the past 20 years is that being married to her qualifies me for Al-Anon. But it doesn't make me an Al-Anon. And there are several things that I do in my life today on a real regular basis in order to stand up here and tell you that I'm a member of Al-Anon. And I want to share two or three of those things with you right quick. The first thing that I do in order to tell you I'm an Al-Anon is I suit up and show up and occupy that chair in an Al-Anon meeting on a real regular basis. Now, I know that this is a program of action. I know that you can't get it by osmosis because I tried. The first seven months that I was here, I tried to sit in that chair and rub up against you and get your recovery to rub off on me. And, and of course, it doesn't happen that way, but I, I also know that it begins with suiting up and showing up and occupying that chair. Let me explain it to you another way. Now, I could take that chair and I could take it out to the back of the lot and I could put it in the middle of the chicken coop and I could occupy that chair in the middle of that chicken coop every day for 20 years. And guess what? Yeah, I still wouldn't be a chicken. That's right. But let me suggest this to you. If I did that every day for 20 years, at the end of that time, I would know a whole lot about chickens. And I would know a whole lot about how the successful chickens get it done. Now, you hear what I'm saying? It's, it's suiting up and showing up and occupying that chair in that al meeting with those winners that were there for me and watching them and seeing what they do. It's there that I begin to get an idea of the changes that I'm going to have to make if I'm going to be like you when I grow up. Okay. Now, the next thing I tell you that I do in order to tell you I'm an Al-Anon, and, uh, and remember, this, this is just what works for me, is uh, I have to have a home group. Now, my home group is the Wednesday night discussion meeting in Bessemer, Alabama. When I got here at Labor Day weekend, 82, I didn't need a home group. When I got here, I didn't need Al-Anon. Because, you see, there was nothing wrong with me. I got here well. And it took me seven months of sitting in your meetings to learn just how sick I was and just how much help I needed. But, you see, that treatment center that my wife went to, they had something up there called Family Week. Now, I call it Hell Week because that's what it was. But me and two teenage kids went up there and moved in and stayed up there from Monday to Friday. And I, I, I learned some stuff up there. And one of the things that I heard up there was, they said, the people that get out of here that stay sober are the ones that go to AA. And my job changed in the, in the snap of a finger. Yeah. Because you see, if she didn't drink anymore, we was going to be okay. And I told you that with all the sincerity in my heart. And so if she went to AA, she wasn't going to drink anymore. And if she didn't drink, we'd be all right. Then my job now was to take her to AA. Well, 
the other thing I heard up there that, that was important was they said it's a good idea to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. So we did. Now, if you're an Al-Anon, you understand that. <laughs> but I wasn't going for me. You see, I was going to make sure that she was there. And we were sitting right down there on that front row. And when that speaker got up there and said something important, I popped her with that elbow. <laughs> yeah. And of course, I was listening real close. Because I knew, see, I knew she was still in a little bit of a fog, and she was going to have some questions when we got home, and I was going to have to be able to answer them. And then I began to learn something as we went to these 90 meetings in 90 days. I learned something important about UAAs. And here's what I learned. I learned that y'all got real tunnel vision about several things in your program. And one of the things that you got tunnel vision about in your program is something called closed meetings. Y'all got a real sad case, serious case of tunnel vision. Because <laughs> the night came that we showed up there at Bessemer and we walked in and the AAs met me at the door. I'm sorry, Bo. That you can't come in here. And I said, well, you don't understand. I, I, my job. I, you know. And they said, no, no, it's time that you turned her over to us. And it's time that you put her in our arms. And there's a meeting over there in that little room over there that you've been needing to go to anyhow. And you not so gently shoved me toward the Allen on me. Now, if you ever come to Bessemer, I take you to my home group, you'll see that the door to the Al-Anon room is at the back of the room. And it's a long, narrow room, and when you walk in, the podium's way down to the other end of the room. Well, I go over there, and I hadn't got a... Uh, I'm not into sponsorship, and I'm not into working steps. I already told you, there's nothing wrong with me. I was just driving her. And so I was still in the ism of this disease. And the ism for me means I sponsor myself. Now, the first seven months I was here, I sponsored myself, and I had a fool for a sponsor. And uh, so I've got old-time sponsors now. And I'm going to share with you as we go along tonight several different ways that you can identify old-time sponsorship. And I pray for you that you have old-time sponsorship. It's one of the greatest gifts that God's given me in this way of life is old-time sponsorship. But uh, when our old-time sponsors told me I have to be at every meeting at least 30 minutes early. And I have to be prepared to stay till it's over. And my sponsors have taught me that a lot of meetings last an hour. But some go longer than that. And so I'm supposed to be here 30 minutes before prepared to stay till, till it's over, till the work is done. But I wasn't into that yet, so I went over to that door and it was three minutes to eight. And I stopped and I took a look inside that room. And there was 23 women. <laughs> and one other guy sitting right down front. And I ran down there and I got a seat by him. We had the meeting and the meeting was over. And we said the Lord's Prayer and he turned around and introduced himself to me. And I said, man, Kermit, I'm glad there's at least one other guy here. And he started laughing. He said, oh, Bo, I'm moving to Florida in the morning. <laughs> so this is my last night here. He said, I'm glad to meet you before I leave town. But you know what I've learned over the last 20 years is that was God taking care of Bo. 
right then. And I'd have told you God wouldn't do nothing for me right then. But see, God was getting Kermit out of town. Because I'm such a sick puppy, it's taken all 23 of those gals for me. <laughs> and if Kermit had been there and had a problem, I just don't know what we'd have done. So God just cleared it out for me. And uh, so the meeting's over, and, and, and these gals begin to come up with me to me with smiles on their face, and, and they're th thanking me for being there. And I, I, I said, whoa, hold on a minute. Whoa, ladies. Now, let's don't let this thing get too far out of hand. I, I'm, I'm not in here because of, of Al-Anon. No, I, I know it's a good program. And I know that it's really helped some of y'all. But uh, there's nothing wrong with me. And I don't need this. And the only reason I'm in here is because uh, they told me I couldn't stay out there. Say, I'm just here. I just drove to make sure she's at her meeting. And you know what them gals did? They just throw their arms around me and hug me. And they begin to very gently pull me into this thing. And they used hooks that I didn't even know they were using. <laughs> and they didn't tell me, you know. One of the first hooks they began to use with me was something called laughter. I'm talking about the hooks that get, kept me coming back till my miracle could happen. Remember the laughter when you first got here? Was it as important to you as it was to me as it still is today? Because you see, I think laughter is a form of healing in our fellowship. And I remember that laughter. I remember that first meeting we had that night. It was a speaker meeting. And we have one of our long-timers. They won't let me call them old-timers. I have to call them long-timers. And one of our long-timers was sharing her story that night. And so they got to meet in the open, and she walked down to the podium, and she said, Hi, my name's Doris, and it's been 14 years since I had to plan a murder. <laughs> and the whole room erupted, yeah, just like this. Everybody except me. Uh-uh. Nobody, I'm saying I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> Not out loud. Because I'm just like a bunch of you Alanons in here that are shaking your head. Yeah. I'd been planning that murder too. I was going to kill her and tell God she died. <laughs> but but Doris's story was full of humor, full of laughter. And, and, I, and I realized before the meeting was over that nobody was laughing at Doris. They were laughing with her, and she was laughing as hard as anybody. And that laughter became very, very important to me. Let me tell you another hook that they began to use on me that very first night. And, and that's something called hugs. We're a hugging group down my way. We hug you when you get there, and we hug you when you leave. And in the middle of a meeting, if you're sitting there and you're in pain and you're hurting and you need a hug, somebody just liable to get up and walk across the room and give you a hug. We believe in the healing power of hugs. Now, but I, I didn't want no hugs. Not when I got there. And I already told you what I told them that, that, uh, that I, didn't, I, I didn't have no business being there. Now, this is true. This is what they did for me. That long, narrow room, they took a chair and put it all the way at the back, right back there by the door. And they called that Bo's chair. And they said, Bo, we know that you don't want to be in here. 
So the nights that you're here, this is as far in this room as you have to come. And, and the nights that you're here, we're not allow anybody else to sit in that chair. That's your chair. Now, they assigned a woman to me. They still won't admit this today. And they change that woman on a monthly basis because we believe in rotation. <laughs> and here was her job. The way we close our meetings at my home group is that we stand and we hold hands and we close with the Lord's Prayer. Now, being sponsored by old timers, I've been taught that the Lord's Prayer ends with the word Amen. So consequently, in my home group, we don't say anything or do anything after the word Amen. Meeting's over. So we would stand to close the meeting, and we would hold hands, and while everybody had their eyes closed, ever who was assigned to me would slip out of the circle. Because, see, I'm not back there by the door. And her job was to get between me and the door. Because as soon as we said Amen, I started for the door. And she'd intercept me. And she'd give me that going home hug. And of course, when she gave me that going home hug, she'd whisper those words in me. Now you keep coming back, Bo, because we need you. Well, if you needed me. <laughs> I was going to be bringing her to that other meeting anyhow. Of course, what I didn't tell you was that I'd been reading some of your literature, and the light bulb was beginning to go on. Yeah, and see, the, I'm talking about the kind of things that they kept doing to me that kept me coming back. Let me tell you about the last thing that they used to pull me into this, and they still use on me today. And that's something that I've already heard mentioned here this weekend, and I'm glad I did. It's something called unconditional love. Now those gals started pouring out unconditional love to me the very first night. And they still just cover me up with unconditional love today. Now in the beginning I had no concept of what that was. And they didn't put a name on it at that time. They just did it. you know. But as time went on I began to hear about this thing called unconditional love and I began to realize that that's what those gals was, was pouring on me and that there was not, I kept waiting on the time that they said, now here's the payback. Here, and I began to realize unconditional love has no payback. And so I, I got, several years ago, I got a little bit concerned about this thing. I got concerned because I realized that I have become an absolute pro at receiving unconditional love. I'm telling you, there ain't many better than me at soaking up that unconditional love. What I got concerned about, and I'm serious about this, was was I doing the job that I was supposed to in returning that unconditional love? Was I as proficient as I should be in giving back the unconditional love that's been so freely given to me? Well, I did the thing, I did it like I've always done things. I began to hunt up books. And read about unconditional love. I began to, to rub up against these long timers when I went to things like this. And, and they used to hate to see me coming because they knew I had something on my mind. And I'm rubbing on them now and saying, tell me what you think about this. Tell, give me your opinion of unconditional love. You know. And I got more and more confused. 
And then about five years ago, I was sitting in San Diego, California, one of these things, a Friday night, and there was an AA up there, and he was giving his talk, and he set me free. He gave me my answer about unconditional love. Because from that podium that night, that man began to talk to me about uh, the relationship he had with the God of his understanding. And let me tell you, it was a powerful, powerful relationship. That man was in tune with God, and still is today. And he began to talk about that from the podium. And he said, you know, he said, I've come to the conclusion that my biggest job today is to stay in good standing with the God of my understanding. And he said, well, I'm okay this way with the God of my understanding. He said, then God can come through me and use me as an instrument of his love, and he can love you through me. And he said, now your job is to work on your relationship with God. And when you get everything okay this way, then God will use you as an instrument of His love, and He'll love me through you. Light bulb went on. Dummy, you did it all wrong again. You've been running around out there trying to find out how to be perfect in unconditional love when there's only one who's perfect in unconditional love. So since that time, I've quit working on how, trying to perfect unconditional love, and I work on my relationship with God. So that when I'm in tune with God, God will use me as an instrument of His love and will love you through me. And I invite you to start doing that in your life so, so that God can love me through you. And these are the kind of things that those gals down there in my home group started using on me early on, old timers. Old timers. God gave them to me, just poured them in my lap when I got here. He knew just how sick I was and just how much I needed them, you see, because that was to become my home group. Okay? The next thing I do, I want to tell you I'm an Al Anon, is, is I have sponsors. Now, I've just had to change sponsors, and I've just, just, just completed that process, and it hadn't been a whole lot of fun because I've had the same sponsors for 20 years since I've been here. And Jim and Fran, God love them, they've just gotten old on me. And we don't live as close together. We used to live about two miles apart, and now it's about 50 or 60 miles apart. And they don't get out and travel. We can't have the relationship. That, but let me tell you, they brought me and raised me in this way of life, in old-time sponsorship. Uh, after, I'd, after I'd been here seven months and got as sick as I had to get, there wasn't any other male Al-Anons for me to ask to be my sponsor. So I asked this lady named Fran to be my sponsor. Now let me tell you about Fran. Fran's old enough to be my mama. Fran came into Al-Anon in 1961. And she believes in service. And she's raised me in service. And she's a past delegate. And she's taught me the importance of service in this way of life. Uh, and she agreed to sponsor me that night with one condition. And I said, what's that condition? She said, I'll sponsor you the only way I know to sponsor. I'll sponsor you like I've been sponsored, in the steps. And if you're willing tonight to make a conscious commitment to me to take these 12 spiritual principles and implement them in your life on a daily basis, then I'm ready to take you by the hand and walk with you. And that's what she's done for the past 20 years. Now, about 90 days into this relationship, we knew that I needed to talk to a man. So she sent me out there in the AA room said, you pick you a man that, 
that's uh, working a good 12-step program. And I, I happened to pick the one that she'd been married to over 40 years at that time. And Jim and Fran have been my guides, my mentors, all this up until just recently. But let me tell you one more thing, oh, uh, what they did. When, when I went back to her and I said, well, I've asked Jim to be a part of this relationship. And uh, Jim said that me and you and him had to sit down and talk. And uh, she said, yeah, the three of us need to sit down and talk. So we, I went and got him and we sat down. I had to give each one of them permission to talk about me with each other. And I had to give them that permission. See, they would have never done that without me giving them that permission. That's, that's how much they love and honor this way of life. But they took away from me, you see, that deal I had where I could run to you and you and you and you. And, I, and they took away from me the possibility that I might, you know, you pit them against each other. And they did that because they loved me and because they knew me and, and, and they knew that this just old-time sponsorship, old-time sponsorship. Uh, not only do I uh, do I have sponsors today, I sponsor folks. And when somebody comes to me and says, Bo, would you be my sponsor? You know what I tell them? I say, well, I'd be glad to, but there's a condition. And if you're ready to take a walk through these steps and implement these 12 spiritual principles in your life and learn how to develop a relationship with God and learn how to live a life based on spiritual principles, I'm ready to walk with you. If that's not what you're here for, I just don't know a whole lot else that I've got to offer you. you know. And I get some takers. And I get some folks that say, well, I ain't so sure that's what I'm here for. But, you know, by putting it out there in the front in the beginning, we don't waste a whole lot of time. We know what we're going to do once we, when we get started. The last thing I do in order to tell you I'm a member of Alanine's, I take those 12 simple steps that Debbie read up here. Twelve simple steps for a very complicated person. And to the very best of my ability, I implement them in my life on a daily basis. Getting up each morning and having that time, that talk with God. Uh, I'm not much on, on, uh, on a special chair and a special uh, uh, meditation time. And all. Uh, and that's okay for those that are. I'm just not one of those. My, my talk with God usually begins in the shower. Because that's, that's where my day begins. And, uh, uh, and and we have a talk, and I invite God in, and I ask him to take charge of my life today and to direct my life today and to help me to be of value to you. And then at night, I thank him for doing that. And that's what this, you know, that's what this thing is about. So these are the things I do in order today to tell you that I'm a member of al -Anon. Now, let me tell you a little bit about me and about how I got here. In order to do that, I go back and start with this simple statement. I was born at a very early age. <laughs> now, it's necessary that I go back and start there because, you see, I live down there in the middle of the Deep South, right smack dab in the middle of the Deep South. And I live in the middle of something called a Bible Belt, a Southern Baptist. Bible Belt. And I was born into a very strict, very religious Southern Baptist home. Now, we wasn't spiritual, but let me tell you, we was religious. <laughs> Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, we was in that Southern Baptist church there in Hewittown, Alabama. 
And this went on through my uh, late teens when I left home to get married, or when I was almost 20. Uh, what's important about this time in my life is that it was at this, during this period that I formed a concept of God that I brought into adulthood that caused me some trouble. Now, I look back, and I know it's not the church's fault, because I remember them teaching me about God being loving and God being forgiving. But the concept that I brought into adulthood was, God's going to get you. And I had that judging and punishing God, and he was sitting up there in that, in that great white throne, and he was keeping tabs on both. And I remember them old hellfire and brimstone preachers that we had in them Southern Baptist churches. You know, and they'd tell you, you ain't got to do it, you just got to think it. Well, by the time I was 14, I'd done thought myself slapped to hell. And, and, and uh, so this, this, was, this was my concept of my relationship with God when I came in the doors of Al-Anon, a very judging and a very punishing God. Now, in my late teens, I met Shirley, and we started dating. Uh, she, me, coming from that, uh, that uh, Southern Baptist home, I wasn't around any drinking. Didn't know nothing about drinking. Uh, she comes from that broken alcoholic home. And, uh, and, and, you know, and she said to me when we set the date to get married, she said, there'll be no drinking in our home. And I said, well, that just suits me fine. Because I didn't, I didn't drink. And, you know, and she didn't drink. And, uh, cause, you know, because of her relationship with, with her, her alcoholic dad, she had said, I'll never drink. So we, we set out on this thing called the Great American Dream. And, uh, uh, and all we knew about life was that you had to work hard and make lots of money and have the nicest house up on the highest part of the hill, and the one that had the biggest picket fence was the one that was the most successful. And that's what our life was about, chasing a dollar. See. And we became good at it. We both had good jobs, and it took us a year, and we saved up enough money and bought that first little house out there in Utah. You know the one I'm talking about. Three little bitty bedrooms. Remember them old subdivisions? And one bath that was smaller than that. A little bitty front yard and a big, huge backyard with a chain-link fence for the dog and the kids. And we had it in place. Three and a half years after we was married, God gave us the most beautiful, blonde-headed, blue-eyed baby boy that a daddy could ever want. And old Mike became a part of the great American dream. Seventeen months later, along came the most beautiful, healthy, brown-eyed girl. Sissy became a part of the great American dream. And we sat down and we took stock. We had two kids. We had two cars. We had two jobs. We had a house. Everything we had was mortgaged to the hilt. <laughs> Owed everybody. But we was happy chasing that dollar. Shirley had to go back to work. We needed that second paycheck. When she went back to work after Sissy was born, she was invited to join a social sorority there in Bessemer. And she did. And we was at one of this sorority uh, club's dances in the late summer down there in Alabama, down on the Warrior River, not too far out of Hueytown. And we was at somebody's big, nice river home. Boy, I, mean, I remember it was a nice place. And it was late in the summer, and... and uh, and we was down, and they was having this big party, and you know this manicured lawn, and they had these uh, lights strung out everywhere, and and the music was soft, and there was a gentle breeze blowing, and that moon was reflecting off that river. 
And I walked up to my wife and handed her the first drink she ever had. I said, here, honey, drink this. And let me tell you something, that alcoholism, boy, it took hold and progressed in that gal quick. It wasn't too many years down the road, she was right up in my face and she was shaking her finger. And she was saying things like, if you had never given me that drink, Bo, I wouldn't be the way I am today. Well, I didn't know anything about alcoholism. All I knew was that mine and her relationship was changing and not for the better. I knew that our financial situation was changing and not for the better. And I knew that our family life was changing. And I knew that those troubles started when the drinking started. And so what I did with her is I, I agreed with her. And I, I, I excused her for any responsibility for anything that happened as a result of the drinking. And I took on a load of guilt that was to grow heavier and heavier and heavier as long as the drinking continued. And it almost got to be more than this old boy could bear. Now, I could stand up here for hours and share war stories with you about our trip through active alcoholism. And I love war stories. I really do. Uh, but we just don't have time. For me to share. Maybe we got some newcomers in here that don't understand what war stories are. Let me explain to you what war stories War stories go like this. We're sitting in the hospitality room. We all got a cup of coffee. And, and I began to tell you about how I cut my, my little finger last week. Now, it wasn't bad. But I cut it right there where the little finger bends. And it, was just, it wouldn't quit bleeding. And every time I'd just about get it to stop bleeding, I'd forget and I'd bend that finger again. And that gum here go and start bleeding again. And Barry's sitting there with us. And Barry speaks up and says, well, you talking about a paper cut. He said, man, please, let me tell you about cutting my little finger. He said, I was out there at the plant and I was working on something and my hand slipped and I cut that little finger. He said, when I got to the emergency room, it took 37 stitches. So when they got through stitching that thing up, said you couldn't even see my little finger. Well, Bob's sitting there at the table with us. Bob said, well, you guys don't know nothing. Ten years ago, I was out in the backyard working with my tiller. I cut that finger off. <laughs> and it grew back. <laughs> And that's what I'm talking about by war story. You know what I mean. You ever been in a first step meeting? You know what I'm talking about. But I've learned something about war stories over the, over this 20 years. What I've learned is that my war stories and your war stories are the same. Uh, the fingers are different. The times are different. Names are different. You get all that out of the way, you know what's the same? The pain. That's what war stories are about. They're about pain. And we hurt a whole lot alike. Now what I want to do for a few minutes is share with you a few of the pains that I experienced on my trip through active alcoholism. First pain I share with you is a pain called anger. I don't know about you, but let me tell you about me. On a good day, I got up angry and went to bed angry. And on a bad day, I got up angry and went to bed in a blind, running rage. And I hadn't been raised that way, but I couldn't figure a way out. And it seemed to me that everything that was happening in my life at that time was a legitimate cause for anger. You know what I'm talking about? 
The next pain I'd share with you was a pain called resentment. And I didn't know what resentment was till I got here and you taught me. But as I look back, I realize I was living my life full of resentment. Because you see, the time had now come that if you lived up the street from me and I saw you and your wife and kids out in the yard cutting the lawn or washing the car or cooking out, if I saw the family out there doing something together, I resented you. Because alcoholism had taken that away from us. And we didn't do things together like that anymore. If I saw you and your family get in your car and come by my house going somewhere together, I resented you. Because we didn't go places together as a family anymore. And of course, when you went by my house, if your, if your car was a little nicer than mine, I resented you because alcoholism had taken the nice things. And we didn't have them anymore. But the biggest resentment of all, my resentment at God. Because you see, I was convinced that God was punishing me for giving Shirley the first drink and putting the whole thing in motion, and he was punishing me through her drinking. And here's how my prayers went then, if you could call them prayers. Okay, by God, God, how much more of this you going to put on me? What kind of God are you that would continue to just push and shove and pour this stuff on me like that? And, of course, those are not legitimate prayers, so you don't get answers to those kind of things. But here again, that was my relationship with God, you see, when I found the doors of al um, The next pain I'd share with you is a pain I hear alcoholics talk about a lot. And, 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 and it's a pain called loneliness and isolation. I talked about it last night. Uh, and, I, and I, I agree with you that alcoholism is a, a disease of loneliness and isolation. What I want you AAs to know is that you ain't got a corner on that market. We know about loneliness and isolation too, and it ain't got a thing to do with how many people are in the room. Some of the loneliest times of my life have been in crowded rooms surrounded by friends. But you see, we're sitting in this room, and my friends are having a good time, a real genuine, true good time. And their laughter is real. And they're enjoying themselves. And I'm sitting over there with that old fixed grin that we used to have. You know the one I'm talking about, the one that used to hurt your teeth. (laughs) And, And I'm wanting to holler out at you and I'm wanting to say, how can you be having so much fun? How can you be sitting up here enjoying yourself? If you had a drunk wife at home like me that you couldn't sober up, you wouldn't be having this good a time. And I'd want to cry out to you and I'd want to say, can you tell me something that I might do to sober her up? But right before I could say that, the red flag went up. No, no, you don't tell them, Bo, that you've got a drunk wife at home that you can't sober up. Because see, this is the middle of the deep south. And you're the husband, and you're the father, and you're the head of the family. And if I tell you that I can't sober my wife up, then I give in to that other pain that's consuming me. And that's a pain called failure. Failure. Now, folks, I was at the top of my profession, making dang good money. I was involved in fast-pitch uh, fast softball, and we, were, we had a semi-pro team, and we traveled all around the southeast, and we was darn good. And I was very successful in that. But I walked around most days feeling like a failure. 
because I couldn't get my wife sober. This is the way I was living my life, July of 1982. Me, two teenage kids, and Shirley. Four individuals living four separate lives under one roof. But let me tell you, that tornado that it talks about in the book is real. It had come through that home and it had absolutely ravaged that family. Ravaged it. But we had that great unwritten rule that every alcoholic home had. And that rule is you don't talk about it. What you had to do at our house is right before you went outside, you stopped at the front door and straightened up. And you made sure everything was in place, including that false smile. And you went out and you told the world that you were fine when you're dying inside. And we were dying from a disease that we didn't even know we had. Yeah. Late July, the kids and I are going to a softball game. Sissy and I are in the car and we're waiting on Mike. He's running a few minutes behind. He's 15 years old. Had to primp just a little bit more. He comes to the front door and I see him stop and talk to his mom for just a minute or two and then he comes on and gets in the car. Sometime later, I found out what went on in that conversation that night. Because that was the beginning of the end. He stopped that night at the door, and he looked at his mom, and he said, Mom, when we get home tonight, you're going to be passed out on the couch, passed out on the floor. Where are you going to be passed out, Mom? Because, see, that was Shirley's M.O. She would start drinking, just going to have a few. And then the craving would set in, and she's out of control, and, and she'd pass out, drink till she passed out. And if Shirley was here tonight, she would share this with you, and I have her permission to tell you this. When he said that to her, she raised her hand to slap his teeth out. How dare his, her son insult her like that? And as she raised her hand to slap his teeth out, the vision went in front of her of the last time that her drunken daddy had beat her with the belt buckle end of the belt. And she had screamed out at him, and she had said, Dad, if God ever allows me to have kids, I'll never lay a hand on them. And here she was prepared to slap her son's teeth out, and she couldn't deny drinking had something to do with it because she had a drink in this hand. And Mike didn't wait for the answer, and the slap didn't have to happen. Thank God it didn't. He came and got in the car, and we went to the ball game. When I got home that night, I knew something was different. And I knew something was different because when I pulled in the driveway, the front door was open. And I saw Shirley moving around inside. She wasn't passed out. And it was well past her passing out time. <laughs> and we got out of the car and I went in the house and she met me at the door and she said, Bo, I can't live this way anymore. I can't go on this way anymore. And I've called this place up uh, 40 miles north of Birmingham. It's a treatment center and I'm going to go do something about my drinking. And I looked at her today, and I reacted today, just I mean, then, just like I, I know I should have, with all the sarcasm that I could muster. I said, Shirley, this is number 1,382. What's different this time? Figured she had some more bounce checks out there. She was in another tight, needed me to call her in at work. Needed some. Told her I didn't believe her. Took a shower and went to bed. And it was the next day when this treatment center called me for insurance information that I even believed that she had called. Now, once again, folks, God was taking care of us. 
Because you see, God sent us to that treatment center about 40 miles north of Birmingham. And that treatment center believes wholeheartedly in the 12-step programs of AA, Al-Anon, and LT. And believes wholeheartedly in treating this disease as a family disease. And there were treatment centers in our area that didn't see it that way and didn't treat it that way, and we didn't know the difference. And God sent us where we needed to be for just a few short days, just, uh, well, she was there 38 days, till we could come out of there and turn the, turn the corner into your arms where we've been ever since. Yeah. Now, they, got, they wrote me a letter and told me that they wanted uh, me and both kids. The kids were 13 and 15. They wanted me and both kids to come up there for, for Hell Week. And uh, <laughs> so... Uh, so we went up there, and we had not, and we moved in on Monday morning, and stayed until Friday night, and we had not been on the property five minutes till, till I was in my first little discussion. <laughs> they sent us down to this wing where the family stays, and there was 18 family members up there, representing six different patients. So there's 15 other people up there that I don't know. And we get down there, and this nice lady that's running that, that family wing, she says, now, now, Mike, I want you up at this end of the hall in the room with Mr. So-and-so. And Sissy, I want you down at this end of the hall in the room with Miss So-and-so. Hold on a minute, lady. Hold on. You're putting my kids in the room with folks that I know nothing about. Now, I'm not so sure I approve of this. And with a big grin, she looked at me and she said, Oh, Mr. Templin, it's not necessary that you approve. <laughs> she said, you got five minutes to be unpacked and upstairs in the group room. Well, five minutes later, I was upstairs in the group room. And they started that very first session, and it's what I needed to hear. I mean, God just took care of me throughout that thing, because that very first session, they started telling me, that my wife has a disease, and that that disease is called alcoholism. And that if I go to Al-Anon, like they're going to suggest to me that I do, that in Al-Anon I'm going to learn about the three C's. And the three C's being, of course, that I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't cure it. Well, you see, I needed to hear that. I knew I couldn't control it and I couldn't cure it. Darn near kill myself trying. What I needed to hear was that I didn't cause it. Because you know what I took up there to that treatment center with me? I took that load of guilt that was still getting heavier and heavier and heavier. If that's my sponsor, you tell her I've got a coat and tie on. Okay? <laughs> a lot of times she checks on me. So, so I began to get this information the very first day. And I started that process right then of shedding that load of guilt. I finished the process in Al-Anon, but I started it right then of shedding that load of guilt that was getting unbearable. The next thing that happened up there is they had a lady come up there and hold an Al-Anon meeting for us. Now, I've got vivid memories of that. You, you've got things in your past that they're just imprinted in your mind. I mean, this, this is one of those, it's just, it's there. And, and, and I don't know what that gal did with the other 17 people. Because, see, we were, all 18 of us were required to go to that meeting. And I don't know what she did with the other 17 people. Because I remember her pointing her finger and saying, No. And God sent her there for me. 
Because you know where she came from? She came out of the old school. Like the old timers did. And she didn't come there to sugarcoat anything. And she didn't come there to water down anything. And she looked at me and she said, Bo, if you want what I have, then you're going to go to Al-Anon to get it. She didn't, she didn't say, I'm here to encourage you to go. She didn't say, I wish you would. She didn't even use the infamous, why don't you try six meetings? No, she just said, big boy, if you want what I have, then this is where you're going to go to get Yeah. She came there that night and she gave me good, orderly direction. She never, ever even talked about an option. I didn't need options then, and I don't need options today. I go to my meetings, and I give them my sponsor, and I come to you for good, orderly direction. And God sent me that right there at that treatment center that night. Then right before the meeting closed, she threw the kicker in. She said, by the way, if you're going to be any kind of daddy at all, you're going to make sure those two precious teenagers are taken to Palatine. Well, guess where the oldest active Alateen group in the state of Alabama was at that time? Right there in Bessemer, Alabama, where we were headed. Yeah, God already had that in place for our kids. Now, we dodged bullets and got out of, out of hell week. We did not run down there and knock down, down the doors of the Alanon meeting. We waited a couple more weeks till Shirley got out. We picked her up, like I said, at 12 noon, Labor Day weekend on Saturday. And we had instructions to go straight to the Bessemer group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We could not even go by the house and drop her clothes off. And she had been in there 38 days. And we went straight to the Bessemer group of Alcoholics Anonymous, where we met up with a group of people down there, and we formed a convoy. Remember convoys? John Bob, I know you all do. I, I love them things. We don't do it anymore. We don't do it anymore. Wish we did. And... And we was going 50 miles further down the road, see, to this A.A. Alanon anniversary. Now, let me tell you, it was Labor Day weekend down in Alabama. It's hot. And it's humid, Labor Day weekend. And, and all I can tell you is the story grows as it goes. I'm up to now where I believe there was 85 vehicles in this convoy. <laughs> we had enough folks for 120 cars. And we had them stuffed in. They was pickups. There was two doors, four doors, wagons, taxi cabs, motorcycles, you name it. Every one of them was a drunk vehicle because there wasn't a straight piece of sheet metal nowhere. <laughs> and not a one of them had an air conditioner at work. <laughs> and off to Tuscaloosa we go, where we went into that meeting down there and fell in love with y'all. If you ever hear my daughter share her story, she'll tell you that she developed her first resentment right there at that meeting that night. She was 13 years old. Because we was on the campus of the University of Alabama, and they auctioned off, uh, had a raffle. And they raffled off a red and white crimson tied football that was autographed by Bear Bryant, and she didn't win it. <laughs> first resentment right there. We left that meeting that night and we came home. Shirley's first night home in 38 nights. And we got out a gallon of milk and we got out a two-pound bag of chocolate chip cookies because they wouldn't let her have cookies up there. 
And we sat down in the middle of the den floor, and until the sun came up, we talked about y'all. We talked about what we had been introduced to. And we made a commitment that night that we was going to give this thing our best effort. Now, I was telling this story for a long, long time, and it dawned on me one day. How did I know that we talked till the sun came up? Let me tell you how I know. Because we had the curtains pulled back now. We no longer was trying to shut you out. The curtains was back and the door was open. And we watched the sun come up. And the curtains ain't been closed since. Yeah. We asked the kids to go to four Alateen meetings and then we'd talk with them. Mike went to his four. He said, it ain't for me. He said, Mama, I love you and I love you sober and I hope you stay sober. And when you get one of them birthday cakes, I'll go. And, of course, if y'all happen to go to a convention down on on the uh, Panama City or Gulf Shores down on the ocean, uh, I'll go to that. <laughs> but uh just wasn't his deal to, to go to those Alateen meetings. Okay? Uh, Sissy went to her four and fell in love with it. And stayed in there. She was 13, stayed in there till she was 20 and came right on into Alanine. Now let me stop here just a minute and let me pay a special thanks to Alateen. Because you see, Alateen saved my daughter's life. We didn't know until two years later that she was contemplating suicide the summer that her mama got sober. The pain of living in that kind of home, that kind of hell. She had already told her friends that she wouldn't be back at school that September. And she found Alateen, they put their arms around her and they loved her and she didn't have to do that. She didn't have to do that. So if you're sitting in this room tonight and you have, or you are now or ever have been an Alateen sponsor, let me assure you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's got a special garden in heaven for you. I believe that with all my heart. <laughs> Shirley's over there in AA. She's got her a sponsor. She's got a book. She's implementing spiritual principles in her life, and she's getting well. I've already told you what I was doing. Floundering around, bouncing around, taking up space. And I wasn't doing nothing. That went on for seven months until finally I came to the point where I knew that I had to do something about me and I asked Fran to be my sponsor. Once I asked Fran to be my sponsor and we got Jim involved in this thing, I began to experience some spiritual growth and I began to get some relief. We began to move along. All of a sudden I said, well, it's time for me to do an inventory. Now, I didn't tell them. You know, I'm, I'm... pretty intelligent fellow. And I didn't tell them. So I started trying to do this inventory, write this inventory, and I just having all kind of trouble. Couldn't get it written. So uh, I called up. That's what I'd do. See, I'd run it in the ditch. And once it's in the ditch, I'd call them, and I'd say, I've got to come by and see you. So went by one afternoon, sat down, got a cup of coffee, and I said, look, I'm trying to do this inventory, and I just can't get it written. And Fran looked at me immediately, and she said, Well, both of you are trying to write an inventory. You've got to be in trouble, son. I said, Fran, where do you get this wisdom? You know, 30 seconds ago, you knew nothing about it. She said, Well, if you're trying to do the fourth step, you're in trouble, son, because you ain't through with the third step. <laughs> and she said, you still got God sitting up there judging you and punishing you, and until you do something about your concept of God, you're not going to make a whole lot more progress in this way of life. 
So, Jim, my, I hope you all noticed, I have an AA and an Al-Anon sponsor. Okay. Is Jim's AA? Jim reached out and took me by the hand and said, come with me, son. And we went down the steps of his house into, into the, his basement into his uh, study. And we sat down at his desk, and he pulled out a book there, and it was called The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Textbook of AA. And he opened up that book to the chapter to the agnostic. And he took me into that chapter. And it was right there in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that afternoon, in the chapter to the agnostic, that I found the God that I have in my life today. And it's no longer a God of judgment and punishment. It's a God of infinite power and of infinite love. Can you imagine? Infinite power and infinite love. So I said, well, got this new concept of God. All right, I'm off and running now. And I was running just as hard away from God as I could. Because seeing that Southern Baptist Church, when you turned it over to God, you had to become a Sunday school director. (laughs) Or, or, Or a song director. Or, you know, maybe even a missionary, depending on how much you turned over, you know. And I didn't want to have nothing to do with any of that. And so I was running from God. And God, the God that I have today loves me enough, so much, that He allows me to run from Him whenever I want to. He gives me a free will and allows me to use it. And He allows me to get just as miserable as I have to get. And when I get his, when I can't stand it anymore, then I turn around and he's as close as the next breath. Yeah. So I'm running from God. And I get up one morning, it's a Wednesday morning, I remember that, and I look at Shirley and I said, I don't want to go to work today. Now my wife, she's a pretty smart lady. She said, well, won't you stay home? I said, I don't want to stay home. And she said, what is it you want to do? And I said, Shirley, I want to get away from me. I said, I'm miserable in my own skin. I don't like me. And I don't know how to get away from me. And I don't like living this way. I finally decided I'd go to work. I could be miserable there and get paid for it. <laughs> and, and I tried to make it to work that morning. But you see, I, I got about halfway to work. And, and I pulled my truck out of traffic. I pulled over on the side of the road at five minutes to eight. And I beat on the steering wheel. And I hollered at God. I said, God, I don't know what I got you can use. God, I don't know where we're going to have to go and what we're going to have to get involved in. But whatever it is I've got and wherever we got to go and whatever we got to do, God, let's do it. Because I said, God, I can't fight you anymore. And I surrendered. I surrendered. As I look back, I realize that what I did at five minutes to eight that Wednesday morning is I fired Bo as the general manager of Bo's life. Yeah. And I looked around and I hired the best general manager that's available, and that's God. And since five minutes to eight that morning to right here with you tonight, the biggest job I've had in my life is to keep Bo fired and God hired. Yeah. So then I began to experience more spiritual growth. And, and we begin to experience, uh, as the book tells us, uh, 
uh, when the spiritual malady is overcome, then we'll straighten out uh, mentally and physically. And we, and we even begin to experience some uh, financial recovery. And, and we're five and a half years into this thing, and, and, and this tragedy happens in our life. And the tragedy is that our 20-year-old son, Mike, was killed by a drunk driver. And, uh, and, 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 but here's the reason I share this with you. You see, we, we're, not the, we're not the only people that have ever lost a child. But I'm going to tell you something. God had us in AA and Al-Anon and Al-Ateen for five and a half years, giving us a base to work from, a spiritual base to sustain us when this happened. Yeah. It's about midnight when those policemen knocked on our door to bring us the message. Mike still lived at home. Two of those policemen had been his little league ball coaches. Tears. I went to the phone. I picked up the phone. I called Fran. Told Fran what had happened. A few minutes later, I remember I I came. When I, the next thing I heard was, "Bo, you got to hang the phone up." I said, "No, Fran, I don't want to hang this phone up." Cause see, I had her on the other end of that phone. I said, "Why have I got to hang this phone up?" She said, "Cause we can't come to you, son." Well, I'm talking to you on the phone. See, 12 steps in a book is just 12 steps on a page. 12 steps on a wall is just 12 steps on a wall. 12 steps in action, folks, is something to behold. It's powerful, powerful medicine. My simple mind is not capable of comprehending the spiritual power that we can generate when we gather together in rooms like this full of folks like us. It's been here this weekend. It's here tonight. I hope that you have felt it. Within 45 minutes of us getting the news of Mike's death, A.A. and Al-Anon was in our home. And you did something different. See, the rest of the family came and got tired and had to go home. Uh, the church came brought that fried chicken and tater salad, and they went home. A.A. and Alanon and Alateen came, and you stayed. Yeah, 24 hours a day, you stayed. And you looked at us, and you said, we're not here with answers. We don't understand this any more than you. We don't have the answers to this. What we have is that we have open arms, and we have soft chest, and we have big hearts. And we want put our arms around you and love you through this if you will let us. That's what you've been doing for the past 15 years. Loving us through this thing. Yeah. Powerful, powerful medicine. I want to tell you about the last time I saw my son alive because I enjoy sharing it with you. He was killed at 9 o'clock on a a Tuesday night. 7 o'clock on Tuesday morning he was leaving to go to work. He came by me, sitting there in my chair with a cup of coffee, tapped me on the shoulder, said, Dad, I'm going to work. Took about three steps toward the front door, stopped, turned around, looked at me. He said, I love you, Dad. Yeah, out the door he went. I'm here tonight not only to report to you that, but to thank you for that. Because, you see, you taught us how to live that way. Rooms like this full of folks just like you. We wasn't living that way when we got here. 
And I want to tell you something else. There wasn't no amends left from be made between me and that boy. We was okay. And that, that Friday morning when I walked up to his casket, you know, I didn't have to stand there and say, man, I needed to talk to you about one more thing. Who oh, I wish we No. No. No, it was a done deal. Done deal. Now, I'm convinced today, and then we'll move on from this, I'm convinced today that I have walked through the deepest, darkest valley that a daddy will ever have to walk through. I know that. Now, if something should happen to Sissy, the valley would be just as deep and just as dark, but it wouldn't be any deeper, and it wouldn't be any darker. The good news that I bring to you is that I have never taken one step of that walk alone. Every step of that walk, A.A. and Al-Anon's had me by this hand. God's had me by this hand. And we've made that walk together. What a deal. What a deal. And I came here 20 years ago to learn how to keep my wife sober. Man. Well, we began to walk through that. Sissy's knight in shining armor came riding into her life. And he wasn't on no great white steed. He was riding the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bob had five years of good, uh, sponsored, big book, 12-step sobriety. And they fell in love and set the date to get married. They wanted to get married in that same church where me and Shirley got married. See, me and Shirley have been married 39 years. And we dated for five years. And uh, so they wanted to get married in that same Southern Baptist church out there. They said, if it worked for me and Shirley, it might work for them. Well, we had a counselor out there in Hell Week that was a retired Methodist minister. And he had stayed involved in our lives, and we had been friends. So they called Howard, and Howard said, Why, sure, there ain't nobody going to marry you two but me. And so they set the date, and we'd get out there in that Southern Baptist church that Saturday. And I'm going to tell you something. It was an absolute awesome sight. We had a big candle over there right to the side of the altar that Shirley and I lit for Michael. Because you see, Mike's just in the next room. So he was there at the wedding with us. Now Howard, this preacher that I'm telling you about, he showed up at a Baptist church wearing a Catholic robe that he borrowed from somebody <laughs> doing a Methodist ceremony. We opened that thing with a Lord uh, with a serenity prayer, and we closed it with the Lord's prayer. And I've still got a resentment that I'm working on today because Shirley wouldn't let me pass the basket. <laughs> so after Bob and Sissy got married, Shirley and I decided we wanted to move to the woods. Tired of living in town. So we sold the house with the pool and the yard, you know, the manicured yard and all that. And uh, we looked around and found us. We're land barons now. Found us two acres on the side, side of a hill out there in West Blockton, Alabama. If you're wondering where that is, it's right across the highway from East Blockton. <laughs> That'll help you. We don't even have a red light. we got a blinking light. That's all we need. And uh, we found this two acres out there and... and, and uh, Bob and Sissy come to us. They was living in an apartment they were renting. 
And they said, we, we think it's great that y'all are going out there in the woods, but uh, we won't go with you. So uh, we put all our monies together and did the best we could, and, and uh, we ended up out there with uh, Bob and Sissy, a home down at the bottom of the hill, me and Shirley, a home up the top of the hill. And, and we moved out there to Serenity Hill. And we be, our lives began to come back together again, and there began to be some some semblance of sanity going on again. And and then one Saturday, Shirley and I decided that we would run down to the uh, Indian Reservation in uh, in Mississippi. Uh, they have a little thing on the Indian Reservation called a casino. And it's two and a half hours from our house, and we were just taking a holiday, just going to go over there and have a little fun. Well, let me share something with you, folks. If you ever walk in a casino and security is paging you to the office and you ain't been there to do nothing wrong, then something is wrong. We got to the office and they gave us a telephone number to call. We called and it was one of Sissy's best friends. And she said, you need to turn around and come home. She said, Sissy has just gotten a report back from the doctor and she has an aneurysm in her brain. And so we went to the van and we started back home. Now this is June of 1999. And it's raining. And I'm driving that van, and I'm beating on the steering wheel, and I'm hollering at God. I'm talking about hollering at God. But you see, God loves me so much that He knows that I get mad at Him every once in a while when I don't understand. And He knows, and He lets me holler at Him. And I'm beating on the steering wheel, and, and, I, and, I, and it's raining. And, and I looked over at my wife, and I saw a change come over my wife that was absolutely visible. Now, she would share with you that she felt the hand of God on her shoulder. I didn't see the hand of God on her shoulder, but I saw the change. And, 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 and she looked at me and she said, Bo, if you'll pull this van over, she said, I'll drive us home. She said, I don't know what the outcome of this is going to be, but I know it's going to be okay. And she said, that's what God whispered in her ear. It's going to be okay. Well, I couldn't get okay with it. We got home, and I looked at my daughter in the eye, and my daughter told me, she said, Dad, God and I have talked about this thing, and I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but it's going to be okay. But I was, I was a basket case. Let me tell you why I was a basket case, folks. I don't know about you, but when I get bad news, I go absolutely to the worst, and I have to work my way backwards. Any of y'all that way? Well, when I heard about the aneurysm, I had her in that casket. You know, because aneurysms kill what they do. And I had my daughter in that casket, but I couldn't walk up to her because there was one amend left to be made. And I had not been able to figure out a way to make that amend. One amend left undone. And that's where my craziness was coming from. I couldn't figure out how to make an amend to my grown daughter for not taking her to church as a child and allowing her to have a God of her own understanding. You see, my daughter never had a God of her own understanding until she was involved in Alateen. And as a parent, I robbed her of those years of a relationship with God. And I couldn't figure out how to make that a man. So I stayed crazy throughout the whole thing. Well, you know what happened. Textbook operation. Absolute. The doctor is a teaching doctor, and he said, the worst mistake I've made is I didn't film it. He said it was absolutely textbook. Operated on her on Tuesday morning, sent her home on Saturday morning. Walked in her room and said, I've done all I can do for you. You're well. Go home. And of course she was grounded, you know, for a while. And so 
But two weeks later, I get home from work one day, and there's a letter for me, and it's taped to the front door. And Sissy has written me a little letter and walked up the hill and taped it to the front door. And I go in and I sit down and I open it up and here's what my letter said. It says, Dad, I want to thank you for the God that you have in your life. Dad, I want to thank you for loving me enough that you share that God with me. And I want to thank you for the power that you've taught me about and that the power that I now have in my life. And the craziness went away. You see, the amend has been made. We just had to go through brain surgery to find it out. Yeah. Uh, she's doing fine. She's three. She's four years now. Four years this month, post-surgery. Uh, she's still having some migraines. We're still working on that. But the aneurysm is, is fine. It's, you know, and we should have known that was a God deal to start with because you ain't supposed to find them. And God showed us a way for this one to be found and to be fixed. Her husband is having some few little medical problems, and we're, we're experiencing some uh, changes. I uh, uh, told you I had that back operation uh, a year and a half ago. I had to go on disability. I wasn't ready to go on disability, but I had to go on disability. We've had some financial adjustments due to that, but you know what? The bills are paid, and you can tell we ain't going hungry. <laughs> yeah. And our life is coming back together again, you know, and, and things are getting good again. And what we've learned through this is that when something happens, we've got to run straight to you. We can no longer run away from you. We've got to run straight to you. And this is the way we're living our lives today. Being real, real active and real, real busy and real, real in your lap as much as you will allow us to be. Because let me tell you something. I've never seen the burning bush. And I've never experienced the flash of light or the cool breeze. But the God of my understanding that I have in my life today speaks to me on a real regular basis. And when God speaks to me today, darned it if it doesn't usually look and sound a whole lot like you. You see, you are my channel. I get my answers from you. So, as I close this thing, I hope that you, you, you have an understanding of just how big and just how powerful my God is. And I hope you have an understanding of just how important you are, just how vital you are to me in my relationship with my God. And if you do, then I want to close by making this deal with you. And here's the deal. I'm going to keep coming back. Rooms like this full of folks just like you. Now, you're part of the deal. I want you to keep coming back. Rooms like this full of folks just like us. If I keep coming back and you keep coming back, then one day, just maybe one day, somewhere down the road, our paths will cross again as we trudge this road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you.